uh, you may recall that the wickedness of Nineveh was found in that they enjoyed slapping each other with fishes. Uh, let me tell you that the depth of it was a little worse than that. And so Jonah's, in Jonah's mind, how could God's grace and mercy be extended to a people like this? Jonah wouldn't allow it. At least not if he had anything to do with it, and he does. And so Jonah packed his bag, slung it across his shoulder, and left the house as he turned the lock in the front door and was about to step off his stoop. He looked left in the direction of the east gate that would get him on the road to Assyria and to Nineveh, and then he looked right and saw the blue gleam of the Mediterranean Sea in the horizon. He looked left, he looked right, and then he looked up. And in my mind's eye, I see him shrug and head towards the ocean. And so in verse 3, we see exactly how Jonah's plans come to be. Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish and he bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. And, and Jonah's actually a pretty good writer. The text is pretty intentional here because the Lord says, get up and go to Nineveh. And, and Jonah says, okay. And he gets up and goes the opposite way. Jonah heads not east in the direction the Lord gives him, but west. And, and this is similar. What Jonah does here is similar to the Lord asking you to go to Akron and deciding that Philadelphia is much better. Or perhaps my directions are mixed up on that. It's maybe like the Lord asking you to go to Atlanta and you deciding that Honolulu has great weather this time of year. And then what's so striking in three and four are, are, are these repetitions that Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. And it says that he was hoping to escape the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. I wonder if there's ever been a time that you've tried to run from God or to escape his presence. It would be a lie to say that Jonah didn't feel just a little bit good when he handed that money over to the Gentile sailors. I mean, sure, he maybe felt a little guilty too, but boy, did it feel great. And in that moment, Jonah realized just how tired he was and how much work he had been doing on behalf of the Lord. And suddenly this escape to this western place called Tarshish began to seem not just like a convenient way to get away from God's call in his life, but also a much-deserved vacation, gosh darn it. And so once Jonah got over the initial seasickness, he spent most of the first day in my mind's eye with his head over the side of the boat, Hebrews are not seagoing people. And once he found his sea legs, he had to admit that life at sea was thrilling. The roll of the waves, the wind in your face. He spent every morning thinking just his own thoughts without the Lord's business, thank you very much, and watching the ocean waves roll by and the porpoises leap out alongside of the boat. In the afternoons, he would nap because, goodness gracious, did he deserve it. But one day during his little doze, a not-so-little storm rushes up out of the air 
Oh, this is where Jonah was going, if that helps, from roughly there to where we now call Spain. One day while Jonah's having one of his little dozes, a not-so-little storm, in fact, we might call it a deluge, which is like, you know, your 10th grade reading list, vocabulary word, strikes the, strikes the ship. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled. Anytime you get the words, but the Lord, just get a little nervous. You know what I'm saying? But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing not just a storm, a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep in the hold. And so the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. The crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods. Casting lots could be like drawing straws, really. Cast, the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. And when they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? I mean, it's not a cocktail party, guys. I don't know if we have time to answer all of these questions. Verse 9, Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. If, if in your version, like mine, Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is God giving his personal name. I am Yahweh. He said, I worship Yahweh the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Verse 10, the sailors were terrified when they heard this. The Hebrew literally says they feared a great fear, which I think is interesting. It uses two words right back and forth to like say, the fear they feared was fearful. You know what I'm saying? The sailors were terrified when they heard this for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. Since the Lord was getting, and since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop the storm? Jonah's given a direction, and when he's given that direction, he denies it. And yet his denial ends in this moment when he's faced with an important decision. He's confronted not just by angry Gentile sailors who are fearing a great fear. He's also confronted by a storm of epic, we might say biblical, but um, proportions. And so Jonah has no choice to come clean, or at least to do so more fully, because it's interesting that in verse 10, the text indicates that they already knew. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running from Yahweh. I mean, it's like he said, you take this money, by the way, I'm running from Yahweh. If anything comes up, just let me know. And yet the irony is rich because through these sailors, Gentiles, people that have nothing to do with Yahweh, nothing to do with the covenant, become the voice of Jonah's conscience. Why did you do it, they ask. And I'm sure by this time Jonah is starting to ask himself the same question. And so in verse 12, Jonah's decision becomes real. He makes a decision and dare I say he jumps in with both feet. Verse 12, throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Well, instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get to the ship, get the ship to the land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them and they couldn't make it. And then they cried out to Yahweh, Jonah's God, O Lord, 
They pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. It's one of those moments to remember that even our bad decisions have ramifications for the people around them that didn't even have anything to do with the decision. And so verse 15 says, the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. And the sailors were awestruck by Yahweh's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Here's what I love about these verses is that Jonah, even in going the exact opposite direction of what the Lord told him to do, even in going the exact, I mean, trying to get as far from the Lord's presence as he can, still ends up accomplishing the Lord's purpose in his life. Because Jonah's job was to go to a foreign nation and turn their heart to God. And while he's on the ship, these guys from foreign nations turn their hearts to God. It's like he can't even escape his own destiny because it's always there with him. And so, so let's just briefly review. Jonah is given a direction from the Lord. And Jonah denies it. And so he has a doze. There's a deluge. And so Jonah is faced with the decision. So finally comes the moment that we're all looking for because Jonah is about to become dinner. Verse 17. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days, three nights. Scene is kind of what it does. Verse 17 is so interesting because it's almost anticlimactic. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Dracula, that novel, but when I read it in school, what I was so struck by is like he ends up, the character of Dracula ends up kind of dying in the most wimpy way possible. This thing that they feared this whole book and been terrified of, he just kind of collapses in front of them and it's over. And then the same thing happens in verse 17 because our, our eye wants to go to the fish because that's like the sexy part of the story or at least the flashy one or like that let's watch that movie. And so yet this text doesn't make that the climax of the story. That's not the height of the story. In fact, the, the whale isn't even a subject of its own verb. It's always kind of acted upon. The Lord had arranged for this giant fish and Jonah was in its belly for three days. I mean, almost as if a side note. With, when you're studying Old Testament literature, especially stories, what did we learn about stories in like third grade, right? Stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, and in a more like deeper context, they have a beginning. There's like rising action that like gets you leaning in and leaning in on like your seat, and then there's the climax, like this explosive moment, and then there's the release of tension, and then like they all lived happily ever after the end. Here's the version of they all lived happily ever after the end, and this story is now the Lord arranged for the great fish. See, that's not the height of the story, and when we think that's the height of the story, we miss what God is getting at. You, here, let me show you where the climax of the story is, the high point, like the bum, bum, bum moment. It's verse nine. Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This is the moment in the story when all of the action takes a different turn. This is the moment in the story that defines everything that happens next. Because until Jonah makes this confession, that's, that's why they argue, that's why they cast lots, that's why they plead with him, that's why they throw him into the ocean, that's why they're converted, that's why the whale comes. This is the high point. And, and, and you have to see that this is the high point for this reason, because Jonah 1 is all about how God leads us and the way that we run away from it and how the way that we kind of come back to our senses and get right with God again. And that's what's happening here in Jonah. And so let me see if we can kind of slowly break this down again, because 
I don't want you to miss some of these key pieces. And I just realized there's like 77 verses on here I didn't show you, so my bad. Um, oh, that's good. So here's the first thing you need to know. God has a direction for your life. Okay, this is like, if you've grown up in the church, this is almost so simple that you want to skip past it, but we need to live in this moment. God has a direction for your life. And yeah, I mean, zoom the lens out. Big picture, your whole life, God has an idea of where it wants it to go, of where he wants it to go, that your life has a purpose and a plan and an outcome, and God's desire is to bring that about. But at a deeper level, we're kind of faced with one direction at a time. You're welcome. And yet, here's the tricky thing about us, is that we want like the long-term direction without having to do the short work, the work of the shorter directions. You know what I'm saying? So we want like the big job and the big house and the boat and five kids and all this kind of stuff, but we don't want to have to do the stuff back on this end of the story that have to do that. God has a direction for your life, and God is going to interrupt your life frequently, often, maybe even daily in some seasons, to share with you his direction for your life. Your, his direction for your life in 2016 could be anything. It could be to take on more responsibility in some area of your life. It could be to take on more responsibility at work or at church or in your family or something like that. It might be that God's direction is for you to develop a friendship with someone that you didn't even have on your radar. It might be to have a deeper or more authentic marriage with your spouse. It might be to take a job that you don't find satisfying. It might mean to forbear with a person or a group of people who annoy or disappoint you. And I'm just saying. God's direction for your life might be for you to endure suffering and pain in a fresh way and in a deeper way. I mean, God has a direction for your life. And when God brings your direction, it's, there are moments when God's direction in our life is, thank you, I needed to know what my next step was. But I would say for every one of those, there's at least six, like, really? Do I have to? That's going to cost me something. That's going to be uncomfortable. I mean, yeah, there are these moments where it's like, oh, God, thank you, because I know, I, I mean, I didn't know what the next step was going to be, but a lot of them are, here we go, kind of moments. This is why, by the way, our mission is to interrupt other people's lives, because we're just so fed up with being interrupted ourselves, we might as well make everybody else miserable. Um, just kidding. And when God interrupts your life, uh, he's going to give you an opportunity to make a decision. I'm always so struck that in the scriptures, like God is so good at giving people the freedom of choice. And we could have like a seven hour conversation like I used to have until three in the morning at Bible college about how like sovereignty and like God's plan interrupts like and interacts with our free choice. Here's the deal. There's never going to be a moment in your life when you don't have a choice. There's never going to be a moment in your life where you're not asked to respond well. And in that moment, God is even big enough to allow us to make the poorer decision. <laughs> to let us go in the opposite way. Because one of the things that you see in this text is about how we're really, really good at running away from God. And for, for some reason, God kind of permits seasons of that in our lives. And sometimes a season is like decades. You see, because sometimes we run from God by like numbing out. 
We use like sin to like numb out. And so we use like alcohol and like sex and drugs. And then we use like more benign things like power and family and relationships to numb out kind of God's voice. That we learn that we can kind of turn the volume dial down on him by turning the volume level up on other parts of our lives because we're so good at running from him. The, the even more terrifying part is in those moments when we're running from God by doing good things. Well, I'm providing for my family. I mean, I'm working really hard. I, I mean, I occasionally give God some positive thoughts and send good vibes his way, and yet we're running. I mean, there are moments where God is going to interrupt you and you are just going to flat out like, no, thank you. Frankly, it took me about nine months of weekly worship at Regeneration for me to finally accept that this is what God had for us. Because Kyle has never wanted to be a church planner or anything. I was like, I'd kind of like to go on that comfy boat over there. And he has said over and over, I mean, this is where we're supposed to be. And I've been seeing that bubble up. We're so good at running from God. We're so good at not taking him seriously. We're so good at giving him lip service without ever letting him really have a say. And yet here's the craziest thing is that in grace, God accomplishes his purpose in our life anyway. Um, the quote, the Wisdom Wednesday quote on Facebook this week, we always have them, was um, C.S. Lewis say, saying like, I gave in and decided that God was God. Until we kind of have that moment where we're like, fine, okay. Um, God is very good at, even when we're running from him, even when we're trying to do the opposite thing, accomplishing his purposes in us anyway. God is very, very good at, in grace, getting his work done despite our best efforts. And so Jonah is on this boat wanting to get as far away from preaching the Old Testament version of the gospel as best as we can describe it um, to Nineveh. And while he's doing it, here's this whole group of folk that now come to place their faith in Yahweh. It says they called on the name of the Lord. I mean, God accomplishes his per He's gonna do what he wants to do. He's gonna do what he wants to do. And sometimes he's patient and long-suffering and forbearing with us and lets us kind of go the other way and in grace, grace is that Christian word for unmerited favor and kindness and unwarranted blessing, that in his grace he still protects us and holds us up. And, and yet here, here's, the, here's the key. Maturity, Christian maturity, is what happens when we consistently say yes to God. That's the dividing line. I mean, here's what Jesus is interested in. Not Christians, not churchgoers, but people whose hearts have a natural inclination to say yes to him. Not like occasionally or infrequently. Not like you're filling out one of those personality tests and like five is often and one is never and like you're hovering at a two or a three. He's looking for a five. You know what I'm saying? He's looking for always. Maturity is what happens when we consistently say yes. Here is what God is looking for out of Jonah 1. He's looking for people that when he gives them direction, he just says that we just say yes. And that's why that song, uh, that, which 
that I Will Follow You song was actually written by a guy I went to college with, I think is so important. Because there's lines that say like, when, even when you lead me somewhere, I don't want to go. Um, even in the good, and even in the hardest part, I believe and I will follow you. I, I love that that song kind of points us to God's character. I believe that I have seen your unchanging heart. I believe that I have s- I believe that you are everything you've said you are. And even Jonah somehow kind of is brought to a center of gravity with this idea like, I worship Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea. I mean, it's almost, sometimes I wonder if Jonah says it this way, like, I worship Yahweh. <laughs> like, oh, wait a second. That's what I do. <laughs> you know, like, he starts to zoom back in a little bit. What Jesus is looking for in us is people who just say Yes. Jesus comes to us and offers us freedom, not only for the times, and forgiveness, not only for those times that we've said no, but he offers us freedom for those times when we've said yes to something that has us in chains. And that's what we celebrate in communion every time. There's this story in the Gospel of Mark that I think is fascinating. And and the text says this, and see if you catch some overlap. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us cross to the other side of the lake. And so they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although some other boats followed. But soon, a fierce storm came up, and high waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat, which should start to sound familiar, with his head on a cushion, and the disciples woke him up, screaming, Teacher, don't you care that we're about to drown? And when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the waves. Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. And he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other that even the wind and the waves obey him. I'm reading a book by a guy named N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright points out that in this text, Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is the better Jonah. That Jonah and Jesus share this in common. They got into a boat, and while they were on the boat, a storm came up that was about to break the ship apart, and that they were both sleeping. And yet for Jonah... To calm the storm, he himself had to get in the water. He himself had to be sacrificed. And yet Jesus just wakes up and he says, silence, be still, and it all just stops. And, and here's the other similarity is, is the, the Gentile sailors on Jonah's boat, I mean, what is going on? I mean, they're afraid. <laughs> and the disciples are afraid. I mean, there's so many overlaps. But, but here's how Jesus is the better Jonah is that Jesus has never once said no to anything that God asked of him. That anything Jesus, that his father, our father, asked of Jesus, he said yes. And that didn't just mean getting into a boat, that didn't just mean crossing from eternity into into our world. I mean, at every turn, Jesus says yes, even in his final moments of death on a cross, saying, continuing to say yes. I mean, yeah, sacrifice is needed but not just throwing somebody into an ocean. I mean, we're talking about a storm that threatens our souls. 
And yes, someone needs to get thrown in. Someone needs to be sacrificed. And so Jesus steps up and says yes to that. And when he says yes, he's not floating around in a, like an animal submarine for three days. He's in the grave for three days and three nights. Jesus calls that the sign of Jonah. I mean, Jesus shows us what it is to say yes every time and assures us, assures us that even when we say no, there's grace for that. That even when we say yes and mess it up along the way, that there's grace for that. Jesus assures us that yes is possible. And so I want to respond to all of this tonight with um, really those symbols of the way that Jesus said yes most through the bread and the cup. Um, Steph will help. Um, and I'm about to spring this. Lindsay, would you help me with communion? Um, you can come take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and then head back to your seat. And then we're actually going to sing I Will Follow again. I hope that's not terribly annoying, but I really think as a community we need to hear that a little bit again. If you plan on giving tonight, the giving happens back in that basket. We interrupt people's lives with every dollar you give us, and so that's how that works. So let me pray. The team will go up, and then uh, I'll help you guys with communion. Father, um, thank you for sending to us Jesus, who has never once said no, and in fact said yes in every way that we most needed him to. And so help us, Lord, today to say yes to you afresh and new. Help us to hear your voice respond to it. Help us to follow whatever direction you give for us um, to just say yes. We'll use this meal to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.